This is a picture by an artist called Edward Gutner that's going to pop up on the screen any minute. And you can see in this gentleman, I think um, it was the first image, to be fair. I mean, it's not like I've trolled through thousands of images. This was the first one that popped up on Wikipedia. But I think it expresses it pretty well. And there's a, it's possible that that's a big barrel of beer behind him, and that might be to do with his level of contentment. But I think the suggestion is that he's as he rests his hands on his overalls, that he's contented with his day's work. This idea of contentment, this state of happiness and satisfaction, as the dictionary defines it. Two things about contentment. It's, it's a primary desire for us as human beings. We are desperate to find content, probably more than anything else, more than we maybe even realize or think we're desperate to find contentment. There's a survey done recently, uh, done in America, and the question was, would you rather be happy, be content, or do something great? Would you rather be happy or do something great? And this is in America, where they like to do great things, and they often do do great things. And 83% of the people said, just want to be happy. Just want to be happy. We are desperate just to find that contentment in us, aren't we? Just, just to have a few more moments with him. Do you know what I mean? Sat there, just content with our days. The second thing about contentment is that it doesn't necessarily follow a prescribed human formula for happiness. All the ways that we ordinarily go to get happy, we don't always find contentment at the end of that. We try wealth, we hope in popularity, we think about position, and yet we can look around and we can see lots of people who've got wealth and position and got it all together, and they're, they're pretty happy, but we see loads of people who are unhappy. And we realize when we think about this that contentment is found somewhere else. It's deeper. It's about finding meaning. It's about worth. It's about hope. It asks. Our search for it demands going down a different route uh, than lots of the routes uh, that we take. Christianity um, doesn't offer prosperity. There might be people that will tell you different than that. It doesn't offer prosperity. It doesn't offer popularity. Just look at how popular um, the disciples were. But it does say to us that we can find peace. Now, it says to us that we can find contentment. Now, Jesus says... My peace, I give to you, it's a peace that lots of people won't get, but you can have that as a gift. We can know contentment. In Psalm uh, 131, it's the song of, song of David, but a song of a human being who has found that contentment. He's found that contentment, and he's able to look back, I think you look back and, and see how it happened, see how he got to that position of contentment. And he's able to look back and see what it means to live out a contented life in the real world. To actually be content. And he knows what it's going to take to keep it. So those are the three things that I want to tell you about today. I want to start by saying a journey towards contentment might start in an unexpected place. Have a little look at the text. I think a journey for this guy, a journey for David, starts in an unexpected place place. It's got unexpected origins for human beings to find it. Um, there is a contentment that we can have that can make a real deep impact in your life now. 
It's not an airy-fairy, faffy contentment that we can have. We can have a contentment that can be of use to us in the chaos of the world right now. And the last thing I want to talk about is how we can stay contented, how we, how we can know it for more than five minutes. So it's those three things. There's an unexpected way in. There is a contentment that is like real and life-changing and amazing, and we can keep it. We can keep it. We can stay contented. It's possible. So the first thing that we see is David starts this journey to contentment in an unexpected place. He connects. This is, a, this is an idea that might blow our minds a little bit. It's certainly unexpected. David connects the journey to contentment with a journey away from pride. See what he says right at the start. And when you say, when you say it like that, it's almost like he's pleading. He's telling himself and God, my heart is not proud. It's like a determined move away from pride. He's been able to look at it long enough and go, wherever I need to be to be content, I can't stay there. It's a recognition that this pride in his life has been a negative thing. Pride. So this is, this is a really rotten sermon for me to preach because like, this is my thing. This is my, this is my error pride and I've got to it's one of, I mean every sermon should really speak to the guy who's delivering it but this one in particular has been murder for me to go through it's like wrenched my heart do you know what I mean there's more more than anybody else that needs to hear this sermon on that deals with pride is definitely me today pride when your ego kicks in and you act either so there's two sort of ways you go when you when you get puffed up with pride you either act all super and I do both of these I'm a bit of an expert in both these. You either get all superior, and then you need to stay afloat, as it were. You need, you're looking around for people to big you up, and you, get, you can't cope with it if, if it's not there. Or you get really inferior. You feel like people ought to be giving you some more credit, and it makes for an ugly, makes for an ugly human being, but it makes for a really ugly heart. And we know, I think that we know, we don't always live in light of it, but we know deep down, we know how ugly it is. We know that consequences of pride um, you can look back through history and if you look back through the detail hard enough you'll see that there's thousand year hundred year wars that have started because somebody's egos been puffed up wars you know hundreds and thousands of people's displaced people's killed because ego was too big there's been and maybe this has been your experience there's been countless relationships, families, communities, particularly families, I think, ripped apart because of pride. Just in an inability to, to say sorry or just you know, a need for more affirmation uh, than is actually warranted. And we know, I think we know actually deep down within us that we, we it's not just me, I think we rub up against this. You can sort of see, see the consequences of it every now and again. You can see those times in your life when you think, just can't physically bring myself to apologize here. I can't go there. And you can see the stink and the mess that it makes. I think one of the well-worn roads of human life is as we pursue this idea of contentment, we end up lost in pride. This idea that we start off with really good intentions. Our intentions for life are good. We've got intentions of life for contentment and for happiness, and yet somehow we wind up 
in pride. I think that is a really well, I don't think it's just me that wanders down that road. I think it's a well-worn road for human beings. We want contentment. And we make this, and I think some of it is the world around us, we connect contentment with our stuff, don't we? We connect a sense of contentment with our stuff. We connect it with, we think, oh, if I just had a, if I had a bit more time, if I had a bit more money, if I were a bit more popular, in fact, if I had all three of them incrementally, I think I'd reach a place of real contentment. And, it, and I'm making it sound a little bit nasty and like you're going out of your way, but it's such a natural thing, isn't it, for us to seek, just to fall into that with really good intentions, good motivations for ourselves, and yet end up lost in a bit of a, like a down, well down the road of pride. Because before you know it, if it's about stuff, if we look and think, well, if I could just have a bit more time and a bit more money, then your ego kicks in. You see somebody else with a bit more time and a bit more money, and it, it, becomes, it becomes ugly, and you can quickly get lost in it. And it's not like, it's just, it's just a well-worn road of, of human life. And David says to us in this text, he says, I have learnt not to go down the pride road. He says, I've learnt it, my heart is not proud. I've learnt not to go that way. I'm not going to, he says in verse 2, or he says in verse 1, Lord, my eyes are not, it's like an 18th century word in the NIV, my eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with matters too great for me. He says to himself, I aren't going to look down on people anymore. I'm not going to, this idea of being superior, this idea of having a superiority complex. He says to himself, I've realized that that doesn't go anywhere. I'm not going to look down on people anymore, nor am I going to concern myself with things that are too lofty for me. I'm not going to assume that I need to have a finger in every pie. I'm not going to assume to know everything about that. I'm not going to have an inferiority complex. He recognizes that this isn't the way to go. And what he suggests sort of between the lines is that he's going to have to, if he's going to find contentment, He's going to find it not down a proud road, which can subtly trick us, but he's going to find it down a humble road. He rejects pride verbally and says, I need to find humility. The prevailing wisdom, the prevailing world wisdom on pride is that it's no biggie. In fact, I'd say it can even be quite a useful tool. I'm not talking about when you're proud, like proud of your kids or proud of achievement and you take a bit of a jolly from that. I'm talking about pride prevailing wisdom is it's not really that bad of a thing it can actually help you out maybe maybe even motivate you biblical wisdom says any verse you want to come across on pride pride biblical wisdom says that it's ruinous pride comes before a fall is what the proverbs say Pride, you could say, you could look at the whole story of the Bible and you could say that pride comes before the fall when Adam looks at that apple and he's got this contemplating this idea that he could have the greatness of God in front of him and he just can't resist it. What is behind the whole story of the Bible, the whole fall of humankind is pride. It antagonizes us, it thwarts us, this idea of it falling, it brings things to an end. When you get lost in pride, and I speak as an expert, you can't make good decisions. You make twisted decisions. It brings things to a close. But the Bible says, on the other side of that coin is humility, a trait that we don't really chase after. And the Bible talks about this like it's a gateway 
to a better life. When we look at humility and we think, yeah, that's the trait that we can take or leave, no biggie. The Bible looks at humility and it says, this is the way. This is the way to live a great life. This is the way to fully experience life. In Matthew 5, it says that the meek are blessed. Blessed to the extent that they'll inherit the earth. And it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And there's a sense in which we can look at that and go, that's talking about eternity. That's talking about our eternal future. That we're, we're happy because we've got it all covered into the future. But there's also a sense, Jesus is talking about the kingdom. He's talking about bits of the kingdom that we can experience now. We can experience the, some of the fullness of that even now. We can live in some of the blessing of that now. Finding our security in God wrapped up for eternity, but also finding peace of mind in him as well. It means that we don't end up going around chasing approval. We don't end up hanging on to grudges. And we make choices in our lives. And I can definitely, this has rankled me as I've thought through this this week. We make choices in our life that aren't based on fear or hurt that comes along when we, when we live by pride. We become more authentic. We become more genuine. It's like we get liberated and freed up. Humility. Bible's right. Humility is an amazing thing. It's a gateway to prosperity. Humility starts uh, with contentment, and that's what David uh, points out here in verse 1. It's like, I'm going to go down a different road. Humility starts there. Contentment starts there with, uh, with humility. The second thing that he shows is in verse 2, and this just splits up into three verses. He says that there is a contentment that can have a real impact on how you live today. We look at it as... I think we'll look at it as a bit of a gone-off dream. I'm going to ask you now, and this is a really tough question to ask. I asked this once two years ago at Keswick. I asked a bunch of teenagers, and it was a, and I didn't really think it through. I should have thought it through more. I said, "Are you ask them just the blunt, simple question, are you happy? And uh, just when you realize you're asking a question that it just evokes like a million responses. And it's a horrible thing, isn't it, to, have to actually front up to the fact that you might have to say, I know I'm not. I'm a teenager living in the UK. I should really have everything, and I'm, I'm unhappy. What's wrong with me? How are you getting on with contentment? Could you look me bolt in the eye straight away and go, yeah, contented. I've got this nailed. What other question to think about? What has your experience of contentment been? If, have you ever brushed past it? Have you ever had a moment sitting on a sun lounger in Magaluf? With a nice drink in your hand, thinking, is this what it is? Is this it? This feels like that fellow we saw with his hands earlier on. Is this what it is? Is this me reaching contentment? I would say a lot of the time, it feels like, and I definitely get this, it feels like it's always just a little bit out of reach. And it always feels, and I think this is the way it is for a lot of people, it feels like it's something we've got to protect. It feels like it's always vulnerable to being snatched away by the chaos of life. It feels like it comes when we're able to distance ourselves from life, when we're able to move away from life. I think, I think that's a, I don't know, I've, I, don't, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think I can look around and go, contentment can often be a lot like that. Now listen or read through with me what David's experience of contentment is like in verse 2. He says, I have calmed and quietened myself, quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. 
Like a weaned child, I am content. It's a picture for us that David gives. He's choosing an illustration, not an illustration that you'd go to every day. It's the idea of a, you've got in your head the idea of a tot. So between a tot and a baby, screaming, you know, blue murder, fretting for milk. You know, looking up to the mum for milk. It's that, and, and um, I'm just, I'm looking around. We don't have it. I don't think we have any in right now. I've just been away for the week with a few tots, and I've heard those. And it's lovely, actually, when you're a parent that's not in that spot anymore. It just, it's, it's not a horrible noise anymore. It becomes quite a pleasant, a pleasant noise. But you've, you, you hear, there's just this cry from the, we, had, we did have a, a tot in the room next to us, and we heard their cry a few times in the night. There's just this huge, big desire. It's like everything's wrong with the world. I need milk. I need to be fed. Nothing else will calm me down. And yet, and we know in the circle of life that a day will come when that baby, that tot, will figure it out. It'll get past it. And it's not that there's no need there. Baby still needs fed. Tot still needs fed. It still needs somebody to help it get food. Still needs somebody to look after it. There's still like a threat there. But the child learns that they're going to be okay. Learns it's going to be okay because it's figured out that the parent is stuck around. The parent's still there. And even though there's still a need, even though, even though all that screaming was real, you know, it was that serious. If I don't get milk soon, I'm going to explode. It was that big of a deal. Even though that's all real, it knows, it's learnt to breathe through it. It's, it's been weaned. It's learned that it's going to be okay. David says to us that his contentment is like that. It's not that he's been able to separate himself from, from worries and troubles. He's not been able to accumulate enough stuff, like I was talking about earlier, to make, it, to make him contented. The threat is all still there, and it's in the threat, in the chaos of life, David says. In, I've experienced all that, it's all still real, and yet in that I've been able to, you know, I know that there is a parent with me that's going to mean this, he's going to be okay. That's the contentment he's learned. He's learned it, you could almost say, He's learnt it in the struggle and learnt it in the storm. I wouldn't want for that, and I wouldn't want to make this the only object lesson, but I'd say that often, at least for me, my experience of God, my experience of contentment, has really been experienced when I've been, when I've been stuck in the chaos of life, when I've been screaming. When I've been lost, that's when I found him there. I'm not sure that that's the only place you can find him. But it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Contentment is not achieved by getting more stuff. It's not achieved by having, keeping troubles at arm's length. It's from knowing that God is on it. It's from knowing that God's there. And it's learning as David says, it's learning to quieten yourself and learning to breathe and find calm in the moment. That is the kind of, when I think about contentment that is sat on a nice um, sun lounger with a nice drink next to me, 
terrified that it's all going to get snatched away when I go back. When I think about that contentment, or when I think about the contentment that David's talking about here, contentment in chaos, contentment with real need. David looks back on his life, and he looks back on the chaos, and he looks back on the screams, and he looks back on the struggles, and he says, God was there. If God was there, then God's going to stick with me. He learns his contentment in the struggles and in the tough times. That's the kind of contentment that you need. Last point is how we stay contented. I think after many years and some painful lessons, having found contentment, David looks out, you see in verse 3, he looks out at the people of Israel, and he wants it for them. It's like he's looking around at his people and he's saying, I want, I know that contentment's out there, I know that it's real, I know that it can exist even in the, even in the tough rubbish world. I want it for you people. And he says to them as a plea, plea to God, I think, but also probably a plea to the people. He says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. He's saying to them, he's saying to them, I think, looking back at how hard the journey to contentment has been and seeing all the mess ups that he's made and how hard it was, was for him to be humbled and quietened. And he's saying to them, if you truly want, if you truly want contentment, you're probably going to need to be humbled. If you truly want to be calm in the chaos of life, you're going to need to go all in with God. He uses this word hope. I've had a bit of a sense of that this week as I've watched some of the Olympics and I've watched some of these dudes. I've really wanted them to win and I've just like totally invested, like I've invested watching them to silly o'clock. I've been sort of felt like I was there. I've been screaming at the telly. Just this, it's probably not a strong enough analogy when I think about it now, but just this real commitment to them. David says to the people, he says, if you want this level of contentment, if you want to be, you're going to need to be humbled. If you want to be quiet in the chaos, he says, you're going to need to go all in with God. You're going to need to hope in him. When I think about that, and I think when David thought about that, partly you think, I wonder if David looked back at Israel as he, as he wrote these words down, perhaps, or had them written down for him, or as he verbalized them. I bet he looked at Israel and thought, there's not a huge amount in, the, in this nation's past that suggests that it's going to be humbled. There's not a lot in this nation's past that suggests that it's going to be able to find calm. I think when I think about that for me, I think, or when I think about that for us, or when I think about that for our society, I think, is, is there lots in our history that suggests that we're going to be readily humbled, that our pride is going to be dealt with, that we're going to be able to find quietness in the chaos? I'd look back through history, and I'd say there's very little there. Is there any hope there? And I'd say there isn't anywhere and that should cause a gulp. Anywhere outside the story of Jesus, I would say there's no hope for this. Except you look to the story of Jesus at the point when it really, really matters, really, really matters for humanity. And you'd say, if anyone can legitimately claim to look at people with haughty eyes, if anyone in the world ever can, can have a legitimate claim to walk around a bit cocky, and it be, and you go, oh, that's fair enough. He's come from heaven. It's Jesus. If anybody had the grounds 
to scream at the injustice that they were facing. If anybody had the, the grounds to let rip and shout and bawl and scream, it was Jesus. And yet, at the point when it really matters, he humbles himself and he doesn't utter a word. And if Jesus is who he says he was, and he was if he's God, then this means that even for proud people like me and you, and even for people who struggle in the chaos of life, and do all sorts in the chaos of life, even for us, there's real, genuine hope of contentment. My plea with you over the summer will be to put your eyes back on him. Um, let's just pray, shall we? Father, we just want to thank you for Jesus. We want to thank you that he wasn't proud, that he did humble himself to walk this earth as a man, that he took my sins and my sorrows, and he made them his very own, and bearing all that weight of sin, he was silent. Thank you that we know forgiveness through that sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you that we can know his peace, that we can know contentment. Father, for, for those of us who've never experienced that before or are struggling with that, would you speak to us now by your spirit? Would you help us to speak to you about this? Father, we pray that this week we would hope in the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.